Hey there, it's me, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, that redheaded actor from Modern Family. I have a podcast. It's combining a couple of my favorite things, talking and food. Please join me as I dine with the biggest names in entertainment, people like Julie Bowen, Kristen Bell, Fred Armisen, and so many more. It's called Dinners on Me, and you're invited. Am I saying a chocolate souffle is going to get me to reveal all of my secrets? Yeah, I am. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, listeners, it's Allison. Can You Do That is taking a holiday break. But while we're gone, we're bringing you some episodes from earlier in the year. Just before the presidential election, we brought you a special three-part series about the legacy of the past four years of the Trump administration. The series dove into our country's hyperpolarization and how some pieces of the Trump agenda have exacerbated our divides. And that was all before the election. If you listen to these episodes now with the election behind us, the series reveals what drove some voter decisions at the polls, and it forecasts some of the debates happening within our political parties today. Hear more of what this series reveals in hindsight with a fresh listen. Here's the second episode of that series on Trump and science. President Trump has disrupted so much in Washington. He's bucked against the norms of the White House and the way Americans perceive how Washington works. Much of this transformation has unfolded in dramatic, headline-grabbing moments. But some of this change has been gradual. It's happened over time in small moments that together end up carrying large consequence. The Trump administration has slowly unraveled parts of our government that rely on expertise and data, on empirical findings and research. And Trump's rhetoric often disparages public institutions, everything from the media to the U.S. intelligence community to science-based government institutions. The breaking news, President Trump taking on his CDC director, calling him confused and mistaken on two issues central to stopping the spread of the virus, masks and vaccines. I think he made a mistake when he said that. It's just incorrect information. And I called him, and he didn't tell me that. And I think he got the message maybe confused. And while this gradual erosion of trust has garnered some attention, the weakening of U.S.-based science agencies could have gone largely unnoticed by much of the country until a global pandemic made it impossible to ignore. This is the second episode in a three-part series for Can He Do That? about the legacy of the past four years of the Trump administration. In office, he has served to try to uh, appeal to his hardcore partisan conservative base at the expense of efforts to heal the country or bridge our partisan divide. In this series, we're looking at one of the most notable transformations of the United States under Trump's tenure, hyperpolarization. And for the past 25 years, our country's been on this trajectory of increased partisanship and increased polarization, but it was really punctuated by the 2016 election, how deeply divided that left the country. And how some pieces of the Trump agenda have exacerbated this contentious, bitterly divided place in American history. So now, 2020, he's up for re-election, and this country is as divided as it's probably ever been, at least in our lifetimes, but perhaps dating back to the civil rights movement. In this episode, the erosion of public trust in science-based institutions, where rhetoric cuts to programs and research and an exodus of expertise in government leaves the U.S. today, and how a declining trust in public institutions leaves the American people with fewer places to agree on what's real, and what's fact.
Although Trump's impact on scientific institutions may end up being one of the most enduring legacies of his presidency, he didn't come into office with any real agenda around science. Washington Post White House Bureau Chief Philip Rucker has covered Trump since he first ran for president in 2016 and noted that at the time, science was largely absent from Trump's campaign rhetoric. I don't think we did expect in 2016 from the campaign that the president's rejection of science would be such a dominant theme by the end of his first term. I mean, of course, his views on climate change were known in 2016. He had called it a hoax perpetuated by the Chinese. He had uh, doubted the expertise and, and conclusions of science about climate change. But we never foresaw a pandemic necessarily. And so these questions about trusting medical science and public health guidelines were not really things that factored into the election in 2016, not something that we heard in the debates very much or that many voters were too concerned about. In fact, perhaps the first time many Americans thought about Trump's relationship with government scientists was during a really strange moment in September of last year, 2019. Trump displayed a map from the NOAA that had been altered. A bubble traced in Sharpie markers showed Hurricane Dorian supposedly threatening the state of Alabama. The claim was shot down within minutes by National Weather Service meteorologists in Alabama. On Can He Do That? We covered that incident, known to many now as Sharpiegate, and we asked back then, what happens when a president overrides science for personal or political gain? Ultimately, we concluded that beyond political implications or public opinion, there's no formal way built into our system to hold the president accountable for pressuring a government agency to mislead the public on his behalf. Regardless, it was a moment that brought this tension between Trump and scientific agencies to the forefront of the news cycle. But that tension has been present throughout Trump's term. And the arrival in early 2020 of the novel coronavirus really brought this tension to the forefront of American discourse. I talked to Philip back in early October, nearly eight months into the pandemic in the U.S. Of course, real events have a way of changing what we focus on, the way 9-11 affected the whole frame of the Bush presidency. I think the coronavirus pandemic is changing the frame of the Trump presidency and his rejection of science and mocking of the public health recommendations from the CDC have been such dominant themes this year and really to his detriment, I think, helped define what this presidency has been about. Even having contracted the virus himself, Trump's strategy has long been to deny its seriousness, a stance that has carried meaningful consequences. When we first learned about the coronavirus coming to the United States, he prioritized his political standing. He focused on his reelection. He wanted to advance causes that he thought would accrue to his political benefit. He was adamant, remember, in the spring about reopening businesses and resuming mass gatherings as a way to generate public confidence and have people feel better about the pandemic, even though he knew because the scientists were telling him that the virus was spreading and that doing all those things would not do anything to help stop the virus and in fact would make it spread further. And that's what happened over the course of the summer and the fall. We don't necessarily know what was in the president's mind and heart at the time. I don't know that his intent was to jeopardize people's health, but he certainly played politics with the event of the pandemic. Did the administration's approach to the pandemic change after Trump himself was hospitalized with the virus? The way the administration has handled the president's diagnosis and his illness and the lack of transparency about it and the conflicting information from the various doctors and White House officials, I think, is very emblematic of the chaotic and dysfunctional management of the pandemic overall. 
This White House is managing the president's personal experience with the coronavirus the same way they've managed the nation's experience with the coronavirus. Trump has continued to flout masks, continued to diminish the seriousness of the virus, even as cases have surged across the country and public health officials have repeatedly urged safety measures. The confusing messaging from the administration around the seriousness of COVID in the face of overwhelming scientific evidence has led to something striking, a partisan divide over belief in science. It's a trend we've long seen when it comes to the evidence around climate change. But in 2020, we've seen partisan views on science affect the country's response to a rapidly spreading health crisis, a virus that requires broad cooperation to overcome. So, Phil, what has polling shown about the nation's sentiments around COVID? Do we see a partisan divide around belief that this virus is real and that it's dangerous? The, the polling has been pretty widespread throughout the pandemic. And interestingly, it, it has shown a partisan divide, but not necessarily an, an even partisan divide. There are majorities of Americans who think, for example, that wearing a mask is good, who support some of the public health guidelines that the CDC has been recommending, who believe the coronavirus is real and disapprove of the president's handling of it. And so what we've seen in the polling is that even Trump supporters, some of them, believe in good public health guidelines, believe it's important to wear a mask, believe the president has mismanaged this pandemic, but it is partisan. And so the people who don't believe all those things are pretty much universally Trump supporters. There are, of course, not really any Democrats or Biden supporters who are in in line with the president on this issue. To me, this partisan approach to science seems like a significant piece of the Trump administration's legacy. But I wanted to understand the practical effects it's having on our scientific institutions. I turned to Liz Suhey, professor of government at American University. Her work focuses on the intersection of policy, science, and politics. I think that... Most Americans, frankly, are not paying close enough attention that they really understand at a a detailed level how much the Trump administration has hollowed out scientific expertise within government. Those who are paying attention, I think, understand that the scientific capacity of the U.S. government has been diminished under Trump and see that as a serious problem. So... There are fewer scientists working for the Trump administration, fewer people with considerable expertise working for them, and it's going to take quite some time to restaff those positions. We're seeing the problems, especially with respect to COVID, that come from ignoring science. For years, scientists worked quietly in and around the federal government, doing their jobs, trying to serve the public interest. They didn't draw a lot of attention themselves, cause a lot of fanfare. And for that reason, I think people almost didn't see them. They're almost invisible to to most of the public. And now suddenly that things are breaking. We're starting to ask why they're breaking. And we're starting to see the importance of experts. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. Working within and and around the, the government. 
Now, to understand Liz's point, you have to know something sort of surprising about the role of science in our government agencies. I think many Americans are not aware how many scientific experts we have working in the federal government. So you can, you know, imagine crafting healthcare policy without experts or deciding the safe threshold for certain chemicals and drinking water without experts or helping farmers grapple with the effects of climate change or trying to predict the effects of a tax cut on the debt level in 10 years. So you can't do all of that without technical experts. So the EPA, the FDA, Department of Interior, Department of Homeland Security, there are also scientific experts working with Congress and congressional agencies such as the Government Accountability Office. There are also scientists working in federal labs. So scientists and experts more broadly really are everywhere in the federal government. It's really essential that we have scientists, and that includes social scientists, working for the U.S. government to ensure that the best evidence informs policy creation and implementation. So there are fewer scientists working in government now than there were at the start of the Trump administration? They have taken steps to reduce the number of experts working for executive branch agencies. This doesn't necessarily mean outright firing people. It includes nudging people toward retirement, making it, frankly, uncomfortable to work in certain agencies and being slow to rehire. The administration has also been unusually aggressive in placing political appointees into agencies with ideological or pro-business agendas. And these appointees, in many cases, have sought to muzzle scientists, have often ignored scientific advice within the agencies they had. If you look at Trump's political appointees, he has appointed four times the number of lobbyists relative to Obama. But it's not just lobbyists per se. It's, it's people with deep ties to industry, often industries that are regulated by uh, the very agencies they're heading. So an example would be Andrew Wheeler at the EPA. So Andrew Wheeler is somebody who has, as a lawyer, has defended coal interests and is somebody, He's he actually has some experience working in the Senate, but as he's done so, he has basically fought climate change regulation. Are there other examples of the Trump administration hampering the work of scientists within the government? One of the most substantial ways he has really damaged scientific expertise within the government that I, I suspect a lot of Americans don't know much about is that about a year ago, the White House ordered that executive agencies reduce the number of advisory committees working with federal agencies by one third. So that's a huge unprecedented number. So these advisory committees, they are essentially groups of independent outside scientific experts who work with agencies to make sure they're making good decisions as they implement federal policy. I would say that these advisory committees, there are many. So one might think, well, this is a good way to cut costs. But the reality is that these advisory committees are made up of experts who are either volunteering or working for very low pay. So it doesn't seem like a great cost-cutting measure. I would also say that these folks in the advisory committees are outside the federal government. They're often at, at universities, for example. So this measure also isn't a great way to, quote unquote, drain the swamp. If anything, these experts were there to provide an outsider's point of view and uh, make sure that the government is both using good evidence and also protecting public interests. Reducing the number of those advisory committees seems like a, a really big deal. 
This process of attrition within the government, it's not unique to science agencies. We've seen it in other agencies during the Trump administration. But when you look at science agencies, are unfilled positions leaving these organizations shorthanded? I think that we are losing really critical expertise. We're not losing low-level people at high numbers. We're not losing the kind of stereotypical bureaucratic drone. We're losing people with 20 plus years experience who either have been nudged out or, or just no longer want to work under the, the Trump administration. So do you have a sense of why the Trump administration is taking these steps, leaving significant vacancies, disbanding panels and research? The Trump administration is at the very highest levels. This includes our vice president. This includes uh, Mick Mulvaney. These are people who are deeply ideologically conservative and also are very pro-business. And so I think you see an interest in wanting to ignore scientific advice if it's going to essentially get in the way of conservative principles or harm business or at least particular industries that are part of the Trump coalition. Is this uniquely Trumpian or is it something similar to what we've seen from other Republican administrations or other conservative politicians? The Trump administration is similar in many ways to the George W. Bush administration. The George W. Bush administration was also very aggressive in trying to control scientists, trying to stack scientific panels with individuals who they thought held agendas that were similar to their own. In other words, not drawing on the best scientific experts, but drawing on scientific experts who had shown an interest in being pro-business or, in George W. Bush's case, folks who were more socially conservative. So this is something that has certainly happened in the past, but I think that it is happening to a greater degree under the Trump administration. And, Philip notes, it's what has fueled the previous partisan divides over climate science. Republicans for the better part of a decade now have been, uh, as a party, resistant to some of the science behind climate change, in part because so many of the industries that are responsible for some of the pollution turn to Republicans for their help in legislation and regulations and in making it easier for them to do their energy and and natural gas type work. And so the sort of anti-climate science attitude has been pervasive in the Republican Party before Trump, but it seems to have been exacerbated during the Trump presidency, in part because the president has been so explicit about what he believes or, or rather what he doesn't believe. Democrats, by contrast, have historically accepted climate change as a significant threat. That's often meant regulations on industries and businesses, which Republicans argue harms the economy and American workers. Despite Trump's attitude toward science, today this administration is facing a real need for science and scientists, specifically when it comes to developing a COVID-19 vaccine at unprecedented speed. The president continues to tout progress towards a vaccine, seemingly hanging some of his re-election bid on his ability to deliver one quickly. So has that scientific need tempered the administration's approach to de-staffing scientific organizations? Now that they need more scientists, are they reversing course? So to some extent, yes. As the pandemic worsened, the Trump administration has tried to play some catch-up with respect to the status of science in his administration. After an early period of ignoring scientists' pleas to take COVID-19 seriously, Trump began to hold public briefings on the topic, briefings that sometimes included public health experts like Dr. Birx and, and Dr. Fauci. 
And more important, the Trump administration launched the multi-billion dollar Operation Warp Speed, which is a public-private partnership focused primarily on creating, manufacturing, and distributing a COVID vaccine by January 2021. Trump even began to occasionally compliment scientists in his public remarks. For example, one event he said something like, we have the best scientists in the world racing to develop a safe vaccine that will end this pandemic. And so this seems very different from the Trump I've described elsewhere in this conversation. Given the public health disaster we're living through, Trump has maybe realized how crucial scientists can be and is giving them a bit more credit. This said, his interest in science at the moment is probably driven more by his reelection goals than improving public health. We've noticed that Trump's praise for scientists turns to criticism if they express doubt that a safe vaccine can be made by the year's end. And Trump has pressured not only his FDA, but also drug company CEOs to have a vaccine available on a potentially unsafe timeline. So in the end, I'd argue that this is not pro-science behavior, but rather further evidence of Trump's constant tendency to politicize science. In other words, to use it or to dismiss it when it suits his political purposes. Trump has embraced scientists in his support for a vaccine, but he's also repeatedly offered highly unlikely vaccine timelines and put pressure on federal regulators and pharmaceutical executives. Trump has touted unproven drugs and suggested questionable ways to treat COVID-19. And political appointees in the Trump administration have even tried to change, delay, and prevent the release of CDC reports because they were viewed as undermining President Trump's message that the pandemic is under control. I asked Liz whether we've seen any areas where the Trump administration has been good for science. So we do see some advances. The National Institutes of Health, their budget has actually increased thanks to Congress during the Trump administration. I know that there are certain efforts underway, in some cases outside government, that's kind of a backlash effect to the Trump administration. So there's actually an effort going on between the National Academy of Sciences and the National Science Foundation called SHAWN. So that stands for Societal Experts Action Network. And that is a really innovative new group that came about during the COVID era that is basically trying to broker information between policymakers, including policymakers at the state level and outside experts. I think where we see some advances actually is almost a backlash effect of experts who are so concerned about what's going on and are, are taking some initiatives, sometimes within government, often without. And hopefully those effects will yield benefits now and in the future. But at the end of the day, we really need to work on rebuilding the scientific capacity of our government. I think on the whole, the Trump administration has really hampered science within government. And that's not just my view. Over half of the members of the National Academy of Sciences have signed on to a letter that rebukes Donald Trump's denigration, quote unquote, denigration of scientific expertise. So there are a lot of scientists and experts more broadly who think that he has, on balance, really reduced the government's scientific capacity. So where does this reduced government scientific capacity and an absence of a shared reality about a global pandemic, where do all of these pieces leave the American people? Philip says it's contributing to the country's overall sense of polarization. The pandemic is interesting, right? Because it's not a political issue necessarily, and it's not uh, something where there's like a, 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 a 
you know, red side and a blue side to it. It's a virus that affects every American and all of our communities. And it doesn't distinguish between Republicans and Democrats. And there's not sort of an ideological component here. And yet Trump has made it a partisan issue because of his rejection of the science and rejection of the expertise within the government. And, you know, that has put sort of a partisan political polarizing lens on an issue that otherwise should be something that that all Americans have the same vantage point on. And do you have a sense of whether this is what Trump voters want to see in a potential second term from the president, a continuation of this rejection specifically of climate science and this doubt cast on public health expertise? Is that what Trump voters would expect or want in his second term? I think Trump voters care about other issues much more for his second term. They're more motivated by his economic record and what he says and promises he will do uh, for communities around the country in terms of jobs. They're more motivated by this sort of general ethos of fighting against the machine, against the establishment, against the swamp in Washington. They're more motivated by what, what he has said about trying to sort of restore a kind of 1950s style America. The climate science and the, the pandemic science is certainly a part of that, but I don't think it's the main motivating factor for his supporters. On the next episode, we take a look at the part of Trump's agenda he boasts about the most, the economy. Yet some of the accomplishments that Trump's most proud of have a clear consequence. They've exacerbated an uneven distribution of American wealth. This has been the second episode in a special series for Can He Do That? about the legacy of the last four years of the Trump administration. A big thank you to Philip Rucker and Liz Suhey. Can He Do That? is a team effort here at The Post. This special series was produced by Ariel Plotnick and Arjun Singh with logo art from Loren Boglio and theme music by Ted Muldoon. There's always more to the story. I'm Leanne Caldwell, anchor of Washington Post Live. Each week, we bring you inside conversations between the newsroom and the people we cover, from global leaders enacting change to cutting-edge artists redefining our culture. And we make you and your questions part of every conversation. Listen to Washington Post Live wherever you get your podcasts and watch on demand at WashingtonPostLive.com.